Psalm 51. I was thinking about uh, the oddity uh, that is reading books the other day. I've got engrossed in uh, a book written by a friend of mine, actually, which is a, uh, quite a funny story, and it's about a bit of the world I don't know very well, and I've, I've enjoyed sort of just sort of getting into it, and it's a, something completely different at the end of a long day. But when you think about it, reading books, especially storybooks, is slightly counterintuitive. After all, most of us would say that there's plenty of reality in our lives. There's plenty to be going on with just in the stuff of everyday life. If you think of a week of your life, if you tried to write down everything that you experienced in that one week, it would fill already several paperbacks. So why do we feel the need to dip into other people's lives, other people's perspectives on life? Why do we feel this uh, draw into other people's stories? Not just in terms of books, but in terms of films and the movies, in terms of comic strips, in terms of uh, uh, newspaper articles and magazine articles. Why is it that we feel this draw into reading, hearing how other people have lived? Uh, And even odder, I guess you could look at it from the outside in, why are we interested in things that never happened? Why are we interested in made-up stuff? Why does it grab us, hold on to us? Why is it that we find ourselves completely lost in a story? Part of it. I remember coming to the end um, of a particular book last year. You might have read Wolf Hall, um, a a book, a a sort of historical novel. I got to the end of it, and I felt genuinely bereaved that it had come to an end. I so loved being in this story, being inside what was going on between these characters. It wasn't real. I mean, it was sort of based vaguely on historical events, but it wasn't real. What's so important? Well, I suggest that at least one way of thinking about story and words and expressing life is that it does a couple of things for us. One is that it gives us language and in order to express our own feelings and our own experiences of life. It's why it's so important for children to be reading stories and books. They're learning about their world. They're learning about the language and the, 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 the sort of shape of how life goes. That's why they want to read the same story again and again and again and again and again and again because they're getting the, this is how life works. Here's a language for my experience of life. But stories don't just give us expression for how we feel. They can actually shape how we feel. We identify with particular characters. We feel empowered to do certain things. We feel engaged with certain situations. They change the way that we see the world. They shape us. And one of the reasons that we've chosen to spend these few weeks going through the Psalms is to make the point that the Psalms aren't simply, in fact they never are, just words about God. We're always in danger when we open up the Bible of simply thinking, well, this is just going to tell me stuff about God. Sort of abstruse theology, different ideas, commands that I've got to fulfill. Actually, most of the Bible, even the Psalms that you might not see it straight away, are really narrative. They're either telling a story or they're written out of the narrative of somebody's life. Somebody somewhere has experienced something of the reality of their life and has put it down on paper. In the case of the Psalms... These psalms come out of the real, everyday lives that people were living. And they've written down how they felt, what they did, how they approached things, the things that nearly overwhelmed them, the things that brought them great joy, the things that made them realise that they were 
abject failures, the things that made them look upwards to God, the things that made them appreciate the world around them in a different way. They haven't just written them down in sort of factual terms. They've written their response, their experience. And over two, three thousand years, people have come back to the Psalms again and again and have found the Psalms doing these two things again. Firstly, we found in the Psalms language that helps us express the reality of life as it really is. And you're going to find that these psalms really are for the everyday stuff of life. But they do much more than that. They aren't simply a mirror held up to show us what we're like, but they are that. You'll find every emotion you could possibly imagine in the psalms. They're noisy books full of laughter and crying, full of praise and lament. Everything's there. It's a wonderful mirror to hold up to your own soul and your own life. But it's more than a mirror. Because the Psalms are also a pair of hands that help shape our lives. And in particular, help us to live real real lives that are shaped by faith. The reality of life that can be lived with the real God who knows us and loves us. And the Psalm that Linda... um, has read for us this morning, is a psalm of confession. It's a psalm written out of the reality of personal and terrible failure. Now, we may never have experienced quite the public failure that King David did, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But all of us know what it is on a daily basis to not be quite the people we hoped we were. To have a catalogue of mistakes and missteps, deliberate and, mis- and un- not deliberate in our lives. To know we're not the people we could be, not the people we should be, not even the people f- that others think we are. We know what it is to, to mess up. So we come to Psalm 51 with a lot of experience and we come and we find somebody who has experienced their own abject failure. The little sort of title in the Hebrew Bible at the top of Psalm 51 says, A psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you want to read the story, it's a uh, a terrible story, actually, um, of one of God's most famous leaders and great uh, kings, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Find that David, this great king who defeated Goliath, who'd uh, defeated the Philistines, who'd really single-handedly re-established God's people as the great people they were meant to be. Let's power, maybe idleness, maybe a sense of entitlement, maybe a sense of resentment, uh, warp and tear his heart. And what you read is of somebody abusing his position of power to the point of uh, adultery and even of murder. And as you read through this psalm, what you find is that out of this personal failure, he just pours his heart out to God. It's all there. So verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. David, like us, knows what it is to have something just sitting there that never quite goes away. That nagging sense of I've messed up. I can't put this right. This is who I am. In verse 7, he has the experience that what he's done makes him feel dirty. He says, clean me up, wash me. Verse 10, make my heart pure. David, like us, knew what it was, that when he failed, it made him feel unclean, dirty. Wanted to wash it off. Got it long, long before Shakespeare and Macbeth. 
Verse 8, he knows that sometimes when we have really messed up, there's almost this physical sensation. Uh, Verse um, 8, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And a sense of darkness, verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquity. There is this sense of being crushed and and in darkness because of what he's done. It's not a bad mirror to hold up to us to say, this is what it feels like when we fail. Maybe not that extreme at times. Maybe just a nagging sense of our conscience. Sometimes, though, something that simply won't go away, that sits so heavily on our hearts, we can't escape it. It can be something specific we've done. It can be that midlife crisis that so many of us are going through at the moment of looking back on the first 40-something years of our lives and going, nope, didn't live that the way I thought I was going to. I'm not the person I thought I was going to be. Life hasn't got to where I thought it was going to be. That sense of a heavy weight to carry. Where do we go with it? What do we do with it? Well, the wonderful thing about Psalm 51, just like all the other Psalms, is it doesn't just hold up a mirror to our real lives and say, see, this is what you like. It then says, and now receive something new. Something that can reshape life in the context of faith in the God who loves us, who knows us, who made us, and wants to give us new lives. And the psalm shapes our response to failure by lifting the lid on what's really there, And then by pointing beyond our experience of failure, it lifts the lid so we can understand failure for what it really is. And then it points beyond that failure and says there is a different way of living in response to finding that we're not the people we thought we were, that we can never get it quite right. The first thing that it does in lifting the lid is it makes us spot that our failure are part of a pattern. It's one of the very easiest things to do when we get something wrong is to put it in a box. Well, it was only once. Now, we spot it in children, don't we? Oh, but it was only... I'll never do it again. We're less good at spotting it in ourselves. We're less good at spotting those patterns of failure, the little white lie that becomes the third or fourth little white lie to back up the previous white lies. The, the, The petty bitterness... The, the putting somebody else down because it makes us feel good. The career ambition that becomes crushing of other people's dreams. The selfishness or the greediness that moulds how we see our money or our possessions. Those patterns that are part of us before we even realise it. Verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David has the lid lifted on his life. And what he sees in the inner workings of his life is that this sin with Bathsheba is not a one-off, out-of-the-blue, uncharacteristic mistake. It's part of a pattern since childhood. It's the only time in his life that he does this particular sin, but it's part of who he is. It's part of a pattern. He can trace it all the way back and he can say, actually, those things I let myself do then, those things that I got away with then, those things I never dealt with then, they've got me to here. It's a much bigger problem than simply an individual sin. Funny thing is, the Bible doesn't really, isn't so interested in individual sins. Most of the time when the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't mean a particular thing we did, although that's included, it focuses much more on the big picture, the through and through. 
It's a little word with I in the middle of it. A life lived with me at the centre of my life, rather than God and others. And that's a pattern that just runs its way through my life, like a stick of rock and the words running through it, like a thread that runs through. Not that nothing I do can ever be good, but that if I'm really honest, nothing I do is ever without mixed motives, never without that fault line that runs through us, never without that tendency just to overbalance into selfishness and me-firstness. So the first thing the psalm does when we approach our own failure is to lift the lid and make us see that there is a pattern. It's not a one-off. It's part of who we are. But the second thing that it does, very clearly, is help us to see that there is a difference between feeling sorry and being sorry. Between being able to go, I'm really sorry for that, and actually what the Bible would call thoroughgoing, life-transforming repentance. Listen to verses 3 and 4 again. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, what David knew was that he could easily have felt sorry about what he did because of the consequences. And isn't that the first thing we feel sorry about when we do something wrong that's discovered? The first thing that we do is to feel sorry that what we've done has come unravelled. So David would have been mortified that people heard what he'd done. He would have been devastated that the prophet Nathan, whom he looked up to as God's servant and God's uh, prophet and messenger, had discovered his terrible sin. His biggest incentive was to make it go away. And again, we spot it in children very quickly. When a child is found out and they're going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And as a parent, we're going, well, sorry means not doing it again. A terrible phrase. Actually, what we're trying to say is, it's not enough simply to feel sorry that you got caught or to feel sorry that something came unravelled. Is there an inner intention not to do it again? There's a difference between feeling sorry for the consequences or actually sorry that we did it. What makes the difference? What makes the difference is seeing that when we break a law, break God's laws, break a rule, what we're actually doing is breaking hearts and most of all, breaking God's heart. See, it wasn't enough that David simply recognised that he shouldn't have slept with Bathsheba, that he shouldn't have had her husband killed. It wasn't enough, definitely, that he simply felt sorry he'd got caught or devastated that it was going to really mess things up. That that would have been the tendency. What he needed to do was start by at least spotting that what he'd done was to break Bathsheba's heart. But he pushed it even further. He went down to the foundation of everything that we stand on. That is, everything that we do that breaks God's laws also breaks God's heart. That's what he means in verse 3 and 4. He doesn't mean, um, when he says, against you, you only have I sinned. That's a Hebraism that doesn't mean, it doesn't matter what I've done to Bathsheba. It means most of all, underneath everything, most fundamentally, I've broken your heart. It's perhaps the biggest tool, the biggest help that we can have when it comes to dealing with our own failure, is to recognise that we break God's heart when we don't live up to the people that God made us to be, when we don't um, serve the purposes he made us for. When we fail, we're breaking his heart. 
Now, all of that feels very heavy. All of that feels very finger-wagging, condemnatory. But when you read the psalm, what you find is that David has to wade right into the worst of what he's done before he can climb out the other side and get cleaned off. He has to acknowledge his sin so that he's in a place to receive forgiveness. But forgiveness he is able to receive because of God. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop, that's a type of herb, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He is absolutely convinced that God will forgive him. Why? Not because God's a soft touch, or else David wouldn't have had to go to such lengths to recognise the reality of his sin. Not because God doesn't care, otherwise he wouldn't have had to bother about God's broken heart. Definitely not because God doesn't care what he's done to Bathsheba but because of God's unfailing love. The end of verse 1 is a beautiful um, Hebrew word which packs a lot of punch. It's very, very short if you see it written down. But when you translate it, unfailing love, there's lots of different ways you can translate it. It's, there's a richness to it that's to do with a love that never fails, a love that can never run dry, a love that is richly transforming of life, a love that you cannot earn by being good, A love that you cannot lose by failing, by not being the person you're meant to be. A love that simply grabs hold of you and holds you and transforms you. That love. David wades through his sin, his failure, and he finds the love of God encompassing him, waiting for him, washing him clean. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. And this is where he lands it. This is how the psalm points beyond itself to God. It says, when you've recognised the reality of your failure, that you're not the person God made you to be, then recognise the reality of God's love that never ends, never fails, never puts you down, never withdraws. And allow the reality of God's love to transform you from the inside out. Renew in me, he says, a pure heart. Wash me from the inside out. Don't just leave me as I am, because that way just lies repeated failure. Again and again and again, that sense of just going back to where we started. David experienced a transforming love of God. I think all of us can identify with David. Not because of what he did, I hope, but because of how he felt about it, because of the reality he had to face, not simply to feel sorry that he'd been found out, or sorry because of the consequences, but sorry because he'd broken hearts, and most of all broken God's heart. But allow this psalm to lift the lid, to help us see that we really do need God's loving forgiveness, but that his loving forgiveness is there for all of us. His love never runs dry. It never runs out. And his love washes us clean, starts to transform us from the inside out. John and Co. in a moment are going to come and lead us uh, in a couple of songs of worship. And as they do so, it's just going to give us an opportunity to respond to this psalm, respond to what we've heard, to come to God simply as we are, to say to God, this is my heart. These are the ways in which I fail. 
this is the way in which I've not lived up to being the person I always thought I would be or always wanted to be. Help me to recognise that failure for what it is. Help me to receive your love and forgiveness. And please go on, by your spirit, transforming me from the inside out. As the band come up, let me just suggest one way you might use this um, psalm yourself, or any psalms. Psalms were written originally to be read out loud. Um, in the days when the psalms were written down, it, you wouldn't have had printers, photocopiers, um, you wouldn't have had many copies of anything. You'd have had a copy that would have been learnt by heart. Quite often this would have been spoken out loud by the whole congregation uh, in their Hebrew. The psalms were read to be uh, written to be heard and spoken. So on a day when you're feeling a failure, on a day when you've tripped up or messed up, on a day perhaps when you need to come face to face with the reality, turn to Psalm 51. Just open it up. Read it out loud. If there's a particular sentence or phrase that grabs your heart, stick with that one. Go back on it again and again. Allow the words to do their transforming work because God's spirit at work in us. And wait to see what difference the transforming love of God makes in your heart as he washes us clean, as he sets us to serve him again.